20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20-Minute History. On today's episode, in 1990, he was one of the most influential people in the world, a key player in securing the rights of his fellow workers, in bringing democracy back to Poland, and enforcing the downfall of the Soviet Union. In 2020, his power has all but disappeared. What happened to Lech Valenza? This is Season 1, Episode 9. Let's jump right in. When Winston Churchill visited the United States in the winter of 1946, he recognized that this nation was by all accounts poised to replace his own as the foremost global superpower. Indeed, here was a country which had not only remained miraculously intact after four long years of war, but which was also enjoying an economic boom that would lead it into one of the most prosperous periods in its history. Great Britain, on the other hand, emerged at the end of the Second World War confused, damaged, and utterly exhausted. Its near-future directives aimed almost entirely at rebuilding a devastated homeland. In all relevant respects, Britain's time at the center of world affairs was coming to a close. But to his credit, Churchill had not come to America to mourn what had been lost. Rather, his gaze was fixed determinedly on the future. And in his March 5th address to an audience at Westminster College, he encouraged America to take its place on the global stage, to foster a new partnership with the British Commonwealth, and to serve as a democratic model for the entire world. Now, that last appeal seems to have been the most significant for the former prime minister, for, you see, in Eastern Europe there had been developing a nefarious dictatorial order which, if left unchecked, would threaten the freedom of millions. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. The, the communist parties, which were very small, in all these eastern states of Europe, have been raised to preeminence and power far beyond their numbers and are seeking everywhere to obtain totalitarian control. Police governments are prevailing in nearly every case, and so far, except in Czechoslovakia, there is no true democracy. Turkey. Unfortunately, Churchill's worst fears would be realized in more than a dozen Eastern European countries, with few territories feeling the effects of this subjugation worse 
than Poland. As a nation which had been practically decimated by nearly six years of Nazi occupation, Poland was in no position to stand up for itself when Stalin's military invaded in 1945 and subsequently refused to leave. To make matters worse, Allied requests at Yalta and Potsdam that Russia withdraw its troops and allow free elections fell completely on deaf ears, and in the course of just a couple years, the Soviet Union had installed in Poland an autocratic, communist puppet state. And as was typical of these governments, the newly established quote-unquote republic cared little for its people's economic stability, and even less for their human rights. But don't go thinking that these egregious violations would go unchallenged. To the contrary, as so often happens when citizens are forced to suffer, they resisted, with their first significant act of rebellion coming in the Polish thaw of 1956. Very basically, when the former head of state Bolesław Bierut died in March, Poles seized the opportunity to protest his brutal rule and the rising cost of food, and in so doing they helped install self-proclaimed reformist Władysław Gomułka as the new party leader. While this transition did indeed manage to affect some reforms, among them a renunciation of Stalinism, a curbing of Soviet influence, and attempts at liberalization, scholars also generally agree that these changes only occurred in an extremely limited sense. Or to put it another way, the Poles may have wounded the Russian beast, but it was nowhere near defeated. Sadly, limited gains would have to satisfy the Polish people for a while longer, as further periods of unrest that popped up over the next 20 years failed to bring about anything better, and in some cases even prompted government-sponsored purges of suspected organizers. Nevertheless, the Polish spirit would not be crushed, and the people returned for another round of mass demonstrations in 1980. But on this occasion, something was tangibly different. The timbre of the uprising had changed, in a manner explained well by Gregory F. Domber. Quote, Unlike during previous strikes, the workers demanded expressly political as well as economic accommodations in their strike announcement. Here, the demonstrators weren't just going to be satisfied with mere fiscal reforms. No, this time the Polish people were specifically seeking a new government. One that wouldn't be beholden to the whims of Moscow one that wouldn't endlessly curtail their rights, one that would actually work for them. To do that, they would need to band together in solidarity and nominate a strong-willed, charismatic leader to represent them in the annals of power. And luckily, they had just the man for the job, Lech Valenza. We'll be right back. History is a fascinating field that is unfortunately massive on a scale that beggars comprehension and is not always easily accessible, especially when we're talking about the complex issues of human rights abuses and government oppression that surround genocides. Here at Genistory, we agreed to do this. We aim to change that. Join me on the 15th of every month as we take a comprehensive overview of the field of genocide studies, the various genocides throughout history, and the representation of genocide in fictional media. Together, we're going to help ensure that never again is more than just a slogan. You can find Genistory wherever you find podcasts. A That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. The first few decades of Lech Valencia's life don't require a lot of analysis. 
Born the son of a carpenter on September 29, 1943, he spent his adolescence and early adulthood essentially in expectation that he would follow in his father's footsteps. As such, he received a primary level education, then transferred to a vocational school, and in 1967, he landed himself a job at the Lenin Shipyard in Gdansk. But despite his consistent employment there for the next nine years, Valenza lived in crippling poverty as his wages were simply not enough to support his nine children. With this in mind, I find it entirely understandable that he, like his fellow countrymen, would grow increasingly tired of the governmental corruption and mismanagement that continued to enrich party officials at the expense of his standard of living. So naturally, when anti-communist demonstrations erupted in 1976, Valenza joined in, urging laborers across Poland to unionize and fight for their economic protection. For now, though, his efforts wouldn't get him very far. As it had become accustomed to doing, the state responded with a crackdown, and Valenza's anti-government activities lost him his job. Four years of unemployment then passed, only serving to worsen his monetary situation until he reached the point of such desperation that he just had to give it another go, consequences be damned. As luck would have it, it was around this time in August of 1980 that protests were once again breaking out at the shipyard. Seeing what was happening, Valenza did not hesitate in throwing caution to the wind, jumping the fence, and taking a stand. There would be no more waiting for change. Valenza was back, and he wasn't going to take no for an answer. The unemployed electrician was quickly elevated to a position of leadership amongst the laborers, and when it came time to deliver their list of demands to the Polish communists, he volunteered to be their lead negotiator as well. He argued strategically for better working conditions as well as the expansion of political freedoms, and when talks finally drew to a close at the end of the month, he had remarkably secured a key settlement. Workers in Poland were now allowed to independently organize. Poles were stunned. Why had the communists made such a concession? Had they finally realized that silencing dissent was doing little more than kicking a can down the road? Or perhaps more likely, maybe they just didn't view it as a huge price to pay, believing that they would give up a small amount of power in exchange for the restoration of peace and the prolongment of their time in office. If that was the case, well then, they were sorely mistaken. Solidarność, the countrywide organization of trade unions that was established, rapidly expanded until it represented nearly 10 million Poles, a size that not even Valenza himself could have anticipated. It was without a doubt a massive victory for the workers' coalition, and as time went on, it would present a continuously growing danger to the established authority. But if the history of the world so far has taught us anything, it's that communists don't take threats like that all too well. And before long, the USSR indicated that it would intervene if Prime Minister Wojciech Jaroselski didn't put an end to the madness. Now, as an interesting side note, it's unclear whether the Soviet Union would have actually done anything if Jaroselski refused to act. While contemporaneous CIA documents seem to support claims that Brezhnev wanted to send in the military, John Lewis Gaddis and others have made compelling arguments that the Soviet ultimatum was little more than a sheep in wolf's clothing. But regardless of those speculations, what mattered was that the threat of Russian violence was credible enough that the prime minister decided not to take the risk, declaring a state of martial law on December 13, 1981. 
Concessions to Solidarność were abruptly halted, and its leaders swiftly arrested. It was a truly disappointing setback. But nonetheless, Valencia's commitment to the cause did not waver. Rather, he became convinced that the detainment was proof that the state was on its last leg, supposedly even telling his arresting officers, quote, These are the last nails in the coffin of communism. It's probably not a stretch to say that he would have done most anything to bury that coffin as soon as possible, up to and including the resumption of strikes and protests nationwide. But... With the Reagan administration imposing sanctions, Valencia soon realized that the best and most realistic option might just be to let the government implode on its own. And thus, he let the waiting game commence. Okay, the rest of 81 has gone by. 82, 83. Uh, hey, 83 was kind of cool, I guess. Um, martial law ended, and Valencia won the Nobel Prize for Peace. But Solidarność was still illegal, so... 84, 85, 86, 87... Oh, here we go, 88. Uh, let's see... Um, rising food prices, again, spark a wave of decentralized protests, the government is feeling the hurt from U.S. sanctions, and, ooh, they invite Valencia back to the negotiation table. Uh, perfect, let's pick up from there. After seven years of running underground anti-communist activities, the time was finally right for Valencia's triumphant return to the national limelight. Pushing their backs to the wall, he essentially forced the communists to agree not only to the legalization of Solidarność activities, but also to an even more critical demand. Partially free elections, to be held in 1989. The Workers' Coalition ran a great campaign, and when the results were finalized, they had comfortably exceeded their greatest expectations. They won every single contested seat in the lower house of parliament, and 99% of the seats in the newly established upper house. When the response from the Soviet Union was crickets, the PCC had no choice but to instigate the peaceful transition of power. The next year... Lech Valencia, once a man of the basest economic status, rode a surge of populist support straight to the presidency. To this day, it remains his greatest achievement. From there, though, it was all downhill. He served just one term, and it was quite underwhelming, to say the least. Now, to be fair, Valenza does deserve credit for a few appreciable achievements as Poland's president, the most notable of which being the quote-unquote shocks that fast-tracked the economy from state control to market-based. This program, alongside deals he struck to begin paying off the country's debt, markedly improved the economy. And, of course, he was responsible for leading Poland out of autocracy. But despite all of that, his people just generally did not like him. Why? Well, to start, he often spoke with a level of crudeness quite unbefitting of a politician. It was a failing that those around him were able to conceal during the resistance, but when he became the most powerful man in Poland, there were fewer places to hide it. As a result, many Poles didn't feel they could trust him with executive power, especially since the country's very short history of democracy made the official duties of the president dangerously susceptible to bad influences. Claims of corruption further dogged him in his final years in office, and finally, 
though it may not have been a primary reason for his lack of support, his imposition of hard-line religious policies on abortion in a country that overwhelmingly supported it didn't seem to help him either. Of course, there are a lot of caveats that could be added here. One could reasonably argue that the coarseness of a politician doesn't necessarily make or break them, that a split in his party essentially left Valencia factionless in the middle of his term, or that any first leader of the republic would have struggled with a lack of clarity surrounding presidential authority. But even in consideration of all that, his leadership still didn't cut it. Above all else, he needed to give the general citizenry the same thing he had given Solidarność, a sturdy, unifying presence. And he didn't. Because of that, he left office in 1995 with abysmally low, single-digit approval ratings. And when he tried running again in 2000, he was defeated by embarrassing margins. He's done little more than become the subject of controversy since then. Allegations that he had been a communist informant in the 1980s led to an investigation. He had a public squabble with Solidarność in the 2000s. He claimed in a 2014 interview that President Barack Obama didn't deserve his Nobel Peace Prize. He expressed potentially xenophobic fears about Middle Eastern migrants in 2015. And it goes on. It's safe to say that as Valenza lives out the rest of his life, he remains a contentious figure, with seemingly every year he's lived since 1990 adding a considerable stain to his ever-growing legacy. And yet somehow, all that is still less significant, at least to me, than everything he did before that point to promote self-determination in Poland and to undermine the control of the USSR. And look, I'm willing to recognize that in a way, this opinion just puts my biases on full display. In case you couldn't tell, I'm an American with a deep disdain for communism and autocracy, so I generally applaud things that run counter to those systems. Believe me, I'm fully aware of those inclinations, and I really do understand why Poles might find him distasteful. But nonetheless, I hope you'll allow me to leave you with this one final thought in defense of my argument. With the soul of his nation on the line, Valencia rose to the occasion, and millions of people lived better lives because of it. With his help, Soviet rule crumbled. With his help, the Polish people were freed. The wall that was separating people from freedom has collapsed. Mam nadzieję, że narody świata już nigdy nie pozwolą na budowę takich murów. And I hope that the nations of the world will never let it be rebuilt. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of 20 Minute History. If you liked it, then please consider helping to expand our reach by subscribing to the podcast, leaving a rating, and following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20MINHistory. Research for today's episode relied upon the works of John Lewis Gaddis, Gregory F. Domber, Peggy Simpson, Wojtek Zubek, George Sakwa, David V. Gio, Hugh Dillon, Michael S. Goodman, and of course, Lech Valenza. On next week's season finale, we'll bring you back to Britain to meet the man that helped make love legal. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning. 
lest you-know-what repeats itself. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 